Hello and welcome to Super Saturday as a comic book media podcast, where each episode will be focusing on your favorite comic books, TV shows, and movies to figure out if these projects will stand the test of time. I'm Damon A, and on today's episode, I'm joined by... Jesse Blaze Snyder. How's it going, brother? It's going great. All right, on with the show. Okay, so, Jesse, this is a new segment that we're introducing on the show called News Roundup. Each guest, we're going to ask them some questions and their opinions on some new comic book stuff. I actually just have one piece of news that went live today at around 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, it was announced that Marvel is going to be making a sequel to Spider-Man Reign. Have you read Spider-Man Reign? Was Spider-Man Reign the one, the, there's two that are coming to my mind. There was, was one series with Kane that uh, that I seem to remember might have been called that. And then there was another thing that I'm thinking of that was, oh, by that super awesome pop artist. Um, where it was like a four-issue miniseries drawn by like Kara Andrews. I think that's the one you're talking about, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Spider-Man Reign is basically like Dark Knight Returns, but like put Spider-Man in it. Yeah, it was by Karen Andrews had drawn it. Yeah, I think so. He, he does those like he used to, he started out I think doing a lot of the Bruce Jones Hulk covers back in the day. He does some amazing artwork. I like that guy's stuff a lot. I like it yeah. a lot too. I liked um just the line work and everything in it. Actually, Spider Man Rain was one of my first couple of like graphic novels I got into when I was a kid. Even though that book really is not for kids, especially because Mary Jane dies oh, yeah. of radioactive semen. So. <laughs> well i mean when you say it like that you, know, you could just say that she caught the radiation bug and it killed her you know from peter um but yeah no i i don't remember that story beat for beat i wish sometimes that i had my buddy aaron's brain because he will like pull out some captain america story he read you know 60 years ago now because he, he's getting you know much older than me and um and he remembers like the Captain America turned to him and he said, and I'm like, what? How do you really? You remember that? Um, I just remember how beautiful. I, I usually follow um, writers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are few writers who have demonstrated to me. I mean, a few artists who have demonstrated to me that they are incredible writers. Um, like uh, Steve Scross, you know, who I think was just doing like a thing Wolverine miniseries or whatever. I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but he, he did that great um uh, a great arc on Wolverine years ago was one of the best Wolverine story arcs that I'd ever read. Uh, he's awesome. Uh, and, um, and then there's people like Dale Keown who I love their artwork so much that I don't care if the story sucks. I will go and read it just because I love looking at his stuff and Carr Andrews. I think that's the guy's name. I think it is who too. Did the Spider-Man reign. He's another one of those guys. Whenever I see his name on a book, I go, "Oh, okay, yeah, I'll check it, check it out, whatever it is." And he's a pretty good writer. Some of his, I remember that miniseries being a little like kind of abstract, but I was surprised by how really great it was. Yeah, it was very. Uh, when I read it for the first time when I was a kid, and even looking back at it as an adult, it was very unexpected. Like it took a lot of different turns. It wasn't like as predictable as you'd like think it would be. Uh, yeah. And aside from it being just like a copy and paste of like. Dark Knight Returns, but put Spider-Man in it, it still did a good job with its making its like own way. It was yeah, really it good. was satisfying yeah. on that level. It was an homage, and it was 
it was everything felt good i mean and felt especially good just because i remember everything looked really right you know like just the character designs like for these future versions of them were all very dark but really you know really cool yeah. uh you know it, it's interesting that you say that was like an early one for you because like for me when i broke into comics like as a reader um, I, the only thing I read for years was the Savage Dragon. I love that book. Um, Eric Larson really kind of screwed it up around issue 75. He was doing interviews and he was talking about all this stuff that he didn't approve of in mainstream comics. And he decided with issue 75 of his book, he was going to practice what he preached. And he like shot his book in the foot for the longest time. Um, but that was my favorite book for years. And I used to read that cover to cover because it was, uh, in addition to being just a great adventure you know, superhero comic book, it was funny. It was Eric Larson um, was my my favorite. You know, he was the only reason why I was reading comics. But I started working at Seven Eleven, and at the time, there was still comic books sold on the news rack at Seven Eleven. And I heard that Deadpool was really funny. And this was back in the day when Joe Kelly was making Deadpool into what he is. Because Rob Liefeld loves to take credit for Deadpool, but it's the visual, and the visual is just a ripoff of Snake Eyes and Spider Man. It's the pathos that Joe Kelly injected into the character as being a lovable Muppet. He's a fuck up, you know, he's a Muppet of a man who just wants to do better than he keeps doing and he keeps screwing everything up. That's why we like him. And, uh, you know, that Didn't that you write run, on Deadpool? Deadpool? Yeah, didn't you write on Deadpool? I did. Point? That was my first, my first work that I ever did for Marvel was a, a Deadpool story, which is funny because I tried to write a little Spider-Man thing with the Vulture kind of doing a good deed and Spider-Man not believing him when uh, he, he claims that he did a good deed. And they didn't like the story that I wrote, which I really loved. I was like trying to knock it out of the park and do something really empathetic that demonstrated that I, I had some soul and I could write something, you know, meaningful. And when they rejected it, I just went, all right. And I went full like comedy action adventure. And I just wrote this stupid story about Deadpool getting a phone call from Weasel while he's about to kill this guy. And the guy wakes up and, and he calls his security and now he's on the phone and he's talking on the phone. And he's yelling at Weasel and he's like, damn it, man. Now I got to fight all of his ninja bodyguards. This sucks. Um, and, and in the end, he kills the guy and Weasel's like, they said they'll double your money if you bring him back alive. And he turns to the guy's mistress and he's like, you got any duct tape? <laughs> um, and uh, I really wanted to follow that up and I was going to do the dead parrot sketch from uh, Monty Python, which I was really excited about, but never got around to doing that. Um, <laughs> But um, but yeah. So just wouldn't that be funny? Deadpool doing the dead parrot sketch with a guy. He's got a guy, and he's like, he's like, no, no, no. He's alive. I just I punched him in the face. I knocked him out. Hit him really hard. Don't worry. He'll he'll be awake in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, I tranquilized him. I tranquilized him as well, so that he would you know he wouldn't cause any problems. And then I had the bit where it was going to end at the end where where. The, at the very end, the, the, he was going to convince the old man and the, the Deadpool was going to leave and the old man was going to turn to his, his main security guy and he was going to go, wake him up. And, then, and the guy was going to hit him and his head was going to go flying across the room and the old man was going to look at him like, too hard! <laughs> <laughs> you killed him! <laughs> you, you killed him! <laughs> let, let me grab my notes real quick. <laughs> oh, but I was going to say, so when I started reading comics, it was because I saw ads for um, Marvel Knights, which was brand new. Joe Quesada had just like started that imprint with Jimmy Palmiotti and the four books. And I was interested in the Punisher. Like I knew about all the characters. My dad was a fan of, of the comics and he, not as much as I became, but like he liked that stuff. So I had a good attitude about them. And it was 
uh, the Punisher, Daredevil, Black Panther, and um, the Inhumans. And I loved Black Panther, and I really liked the Punisher. And um, and I didn't really know that much about Daredevil, but I thought he looked cool. And those four books, one of them sucked. The Punisher sucked. It was like the one I was like most excited about. That book sucked. And like I mean, everybody talks famously about how bad and sucky that stupid book was. Um, but the other three books, they showed me what comics could be in like a way I, I I didn't know. I like the fact that I was reading some like superhero books that were fun and funny, but the Inhumans was deep and interesting and meaningful and black panther had such an interesting sense of humor and uh, christopher priest he, he wrote that book he, he's just a really sharp smart guy everything about that book i really liked and daredevil holy crap man you know st that started my love affair with daredevil for the, the like the rest of my life i freaking loved daredevil wasn't that bendis and at the time no it started out with kevin smith oh and okay. there was a brief little run where brian I, I it was david mack i don't know if bendis was helping him out on that he might have been and then bob gale who wrote uh back to the future um he wrote a story arc that was i i thought also really awesome and then after bob gale's story arc that's when bendis came on and he did his freaking run and bendis and alex mayleaf's run was insane and then Ed Brubaker came on, and that run was insane. And then freaking, I forget who came on after that, but it sucked ass. It was the first time Daredevil ever sucked in years. Um, it was it, it was really not enjoyable. They made him, he got possessed by a demon from the hand. And it just like, it was just very over the top for freaking Daredevil. And then it went back to amazing again. Uh, right after that, and it's been freaking great ever since. Freaking Mark Wade's run was insane. I didn't I even love get to Wade's read all of so Mark much. Wade's run. Yeah, I didn't even get to read the whole thing, but the, the, I only read, I think, maybe like the first seven issues of it. But I thought it was like a masterpiece. I was so blown away. I mean, the art by Marcos Martin and, and some of these guys was just like every issue. I just went, holy crap, I love this book. This book has been amazing time and time again. And here I am again, and I'm actually about to say like, this is some of the best Daredevil I've ever read in my life. Like, wow, talk about a series that grows with you. And uh, Marco Cicchetto, who drew my Deadpool story for, for Marvel, my really? very first work at Marvel, it was his first work and it was my first work. And we've been friends ever since. And uh, he actually helped me get a really great job recently. Um, and, uh, and I actually did a really amazing pitch for Ghost Rider as a motorcycle club called Ghost Riders, plural. Um, with uh, for Marco, and uh, you know he's busy doing all the Daredevil stuff right now, so they don't they don't want to let him do anything else with some unknown writer. But soon they will call me. They will be like, "Please, Jesse, come, come." Um, but um, but yeah, man, I, like I couldn't believe how much that book at the time. Those all those books flipped the script for me about what comic books were. And going back to what you were saying about like seeing different worlds yeah, and everything, like people putting those ideas to page. I think for me, the first artist that i really clung to that really did that for me was probably george perez especially his details with his like big splash pages where he'd cram as much shit on the page as possible and oh. if it was given to a different artist you could probably think it's going to be a whole clusterfuck but like he literally turned that into magic like uh i know uh prior so with our old uh co-host jay and i we did a whole episode talking about wonder woman uh number one George Perez's from George Perez's run. And the one thing we were just gawking over the entire time is just the art and how important art is along with the writer. Like a good artist can take a story miles yeah. ahead. But on top of that, there wouldn't, it's, it's just a whole, 
it's a whole like partnership. I haven't. I, I agree one hundred percent. And I, but I, and I'm ashamed that I haven't actually gotten around to so many of his classic things. Like I, I still haven't read his Teen Titans. I haven't read that that original run of Teen Titans. Yeah, I haven't read that, and I have not read um, his um, his uh, Wonder Woman. But um, you know, he did a book called Crimson Plague for Image that uh, was was really cool around the time when I was reading, um, and. One of the main things that I went back and read, which I, I hated, if not for his participation, because the story is a slog. Like, it's really like, like, I'm sure it means a lot to people who were reading the books at the time. But Crisis on Infinite Earths, it does not exactly hold up as something like you can go read like and just like because there's so much going on. There is so much. Die- it is so heavy handed, but it looks beautiful every page looks beautiful i mean just everything feels epic and um you know and just the characters and and expressive and and you're in a world you know he's one of those guys who is sculpting a universe that is very consistent with itself you know and i think that's like the big thing for me when you're you're the artist that you love it's like you're looking all around and you can imagine how the rest of the page continues because it's so internally consistent that one glance at it, if you're sharp enough with your own like sort of mathematics of your brain, your facial recognition technology, you could just imagine how the rest of it you know pans out. And they're the type of artists where you go, oh man, I'd love to see this artist draw this character, that character, you know, whoever it might be, because you like, I'd love to see George Perez draw Medusa because of the way he draws Star Sapphire. And like, you know, there's certain people where you could just see, you could see it in your mind, but you want to see it for real. Uh, you know, you want to see them playing that bit. So I, I agree. I, I love him, uh, him so much. And he, he's a little bit of an earlier uh, guy for me. So I, I missed sort of his stuff like Phil Jimenez, yeah. Jimenez has a similar style to him in some respect. And I, I was able to read a little bit more Phil stuff as it was coming out. Um, and, uh, you know, I was always reading trade paperbacks and going to try to find like the most classic stuff, which is why I read, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths. But I, I never got around. to. I tried uh, reading uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Earths back when I was a teenager. And it was uh, kind of like wordy. And it's weird because I do enjoy wordy stuff. I love me some Bendis. And I can yeah. get through wordy things. But something about the wordiness and the gorgeous art and all the detail. It was a lot for my ADHD brain. <laughs> if you're a Bendis fan and you've never read Torso, which is a co-write from him and Mark and Draco, get that book. It is fucking awesome. I'll look into that. Yeah. It's a play on seven, uh, not a play it's, but it's similar to kind of seven mm-hmm. kind of vibe. It's very realistic. Um, it, they, they, they're drew it. I think, I think Brian actually drew it himself. Mm. Uh, that one um it's it's not about the art it's about the story and the story okay. is amazing and um it's uh, based on a true story and he wrote it with mark and draco who are, i love mark's writing i think mark's really great too uh mark's a friend of mine um he wrote the manhunter uh the the kate is it not kate kane the the female manhunter series that had been coming out a few year, a bunch of years ago now um really great series too that one that manhunter series but uh, they co-wrote that together, and it is one of my favorite comics of all time. It's one of the ones that I tell people who say they don't like comics but like movies or like TV shows, like, go read Torso. 
Like, okay. And then tell me you don't like comics. Like, fuck, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I like giving people comic books as a fuck you to them saying that they don't like comic books. I'm on the same, I'm on the same page. I'm the same way. And actually, since we've been sitting here talking for comics and everything, I have one more question before we actually dive into why you're on this show. I want to talk a little bit more about your long-standing career. Soups, I'm going to gush a little bit. Our guest here has a huge career uh, from doing interviews, from being on G4, from doing music, from being on reality television, from being a host on Food Paradise, uh, from working on comics, from working on The Hulk. Deadpool, and even Toy Story. Now, I was very surprised about Toy Story. Didn't even know Toy Story had comics. What was oh, yeah. working on Toy Story like? What was that like? Oh, well, I mean, it was amazing and, and heartbreaking, too, because it was it was my first experience working on licensed comic books. And I, I literally, I, I do a podcast uh, every Wednesday called Coolest Geek Alive. Um, and the past, like, three or four episodes have been sort of like a retrospective, like really detailed through my career. Uh, I, my show is really like at the highest level for writers. You know, it's, it's just about adapting these things, adapting them properly. I can't eat right now. I'm doing a show. <laughs> Sorry. One of my children had to come and bring me food. I love him. Um, but, um, you know, talking about that in particular on the last episode, um, working with the Muppets and Toy Story. Whew. You know, the, the best example was I worked on the Muppets. I was so excited. I'm a huge Muppet fan. And I I was so stoked that I wrote the first issue in a day. The second issue uh, by like the end of my third day or second day. Third issue by the end of my fourth day. And on Friday, I was about to start the fourth and final issue. And then I got my notes for the first issue. And I was so depressed that I didn't write the last issue for like six months until it was necessary so waited so long in fact that um i i had to be saved by the other writer who was brought in to add jokes to every panel because i refused to add a joke to every panel which was the note that i was given i said mm. i don't have a good joke for every panel i can't do it i don't want to destroy my script please get somebody else to do it so and then he realized that i forgot a character <laughs> Because he's like, oh, crap, we forgot Bobo. And he put him in in the last panel. Like, in the last minute, we freaking fixed the mistake that I made. But that's how depressed I was. And similarly, on Toy Story, oof, you know, there were so many wonderful things that we wanted to do. And our first story arc is amazing. Uh, it really is a high-level, Pixar-level story. You know, that was my plan from the get-go. I wanted to do something that was on the level that Pixar made their stories. Uh, you know, Nathan Watson, my artist, you know, he would – he would apologize about the book left and right because it, it, we all the artists were rushed. Um, you know, Boom saw it a little bit as like a money-making machine, and they were just trying to churn the things out as fast as possible, which is ultimately why they lost the license eventually um, because the quality of the books was not up to snuff. And um, we were working in between Toy Story 1 and 2, and um, we were really swinging for the fences. And one of the things that we did in the second or third issue – was we had Buzz Light, uh, I'm sorry, we had P Mr. Potato Head get separated from all of his pieces, get saved by these um, other Mr. Potato Heads in like a little um, uh, Bionic Man uh, re reference of like, you know, we can rebuild him, uh, the Million Dollar Man uh, uh, thing, I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and he comes out as Spud Lightyear in a Buzz Lightyear outfit. That's and pretty cool. Yeah, so the issue came out, and then the legal department saw it and flipped out. 
they said that the contracts stated that Hasbro could produce a toy of anything they did. And essentially by making that toy, we were giving a free license to them to go make a Spud Lightyear action figure. But as it actually turned out, they were already making a Spud Lightyear action figure, which would have came out like two months later after we had to go back emergency recut our last issue so it, it didn't even line up for the people who bought issue three and issue four we had to change it retroactively at that moment we couldn't even publish issue four the fourth part of the story correctly then in the graphic novel it's okay but now mr potato head just shows up in this big splash page and it's like why did they waste the whole page on this well it was a it was a mistake it was supposed to be a really big fun reveal and then it got and then after that happened, they got very nervous about what we were doing because basically they felt like we were like bigger than our britches. And we were two issues into the next story arc, which was another Pixar level story, mm-hmm. which was called Toy. In my mind, they were going to be adapting future Toy Story comic, uh, future Toy Story films off of my comics that I was writing. That was the goal for me. I was going to write such a definitively great Toy Story thing that they would go oh why don't we just take this and you know and and, and bring him in you know because i love pixar so i was like i'm gonna show you guys all the things you could do and i'm a big toy guy i've been an action figure guy since i was a little kid love to play with toys so for for me that was a huge like okay cool i i can figure out how to play with toys and have fun for a long time so the second story arc which they made me abort i was two issues into it and it was called toy versus machine and basically andy got a video game system he got a buzz Lightyear game uh, you know, where Zerg was the main bad guy and he's become a zombie playing the video games all the time. The toys are are disappointed because he's, you know, it's that classic tale of like growing up. It's kind of meta, games. too, especially because like was, nowadays. Yeah. Thank you. It was it was very meta and it was a it was like a perfect little storyline. And Zerg was coming to life in the TV and he was capturing all of the toys with batteries and he was taking out their batteries and tossing them out the window. So all these toys were disappearing. They're outside the window stuck in this tree, like hanging on for dear lives. And, uh, and he's building this little transportation thing so he can get himself out of the playroom on a television and, uh, you know, with the systems and he's using the (laughs) remote controls as his, his arms. And it, it was fucking great it was going to be great i was like i said two issues in i'd finished two issues and i got paid for those issues which was nice but they made me rewrite those two issues they handed me this children's book that they had made with all these pre-approved stories that were the most juvenile toy story stories you've ever seen and i had to adapt two of them into little two two little two-part tales or i, I guess i chose to adapt two of them into two little two-part tales because they were so just like Sesame Street crap. And Pixar is not Sesame Street crap. Pixar is freaking elevated material. It's something that everybody can enjoy. And I did the best that I could. You know, I've got some quippy dialogue in those that that second arc. But, ah. And then the third arc, what I really wanted to do with this great story called um, Day of the Living Clay, where they took um, Mr. Potato Head's angry eyes and, and... Andy made a, a toy out of Mr. Potato Head's pieces. They called him Mr. Angry Eyes. But Mr. Angry Eyes was angry. And he eventually makes his own like army of zombies and they're trying to get rid of the toys because they want to be the only toys in the playroom. It was like the a total Night of the Living Dead Toy Story movie. And uh, these sounds like things that could be could have been turned into those Toy Story Pixar shorts. That's what well, that's exactly what it sounds those like. things as well. So, I mean, it was really it was really quality stuff that we were attempting to do. 
And then after we had that initial legal thing, it basically got us in trouble and we had to play it so safe that it, w it, it was barely fun for me to do it anymore, which was really just, it was so sad. And Disney actually wanted to hire me at the time because they, they I, I'm a very good mimic. I, I'm a songwriter as well. I'm a voiceover actor. And, um, and my whole life, I, I like when I was a little kid, I used to like mimic uh, comedy movies. So I would just like grow up like uh, quoting movies and repeating all that stuff. So when it comes to dialogue for characters like Toy Story or Mickey Mouse or whatever, like, that's easy, man. I go, oh, it's me, Mickey. Hi. All right, Mickey, come on, let's go. You know, I, I can get their rhythm in my head. And, you know, if I'm writing the joke, that, that sounds like, pretty right, good. Batman, come on in. Let's play a game. You know, and I can get anybody who I want and I can start, you know, figuring out in my ear, like, okay, that's what they sound like. Okay. And I have a good time doing it. But that's what they wanted me to do. I had like pitched them a bunch of things and they were like, well, scale all that back. We just really love your great dialogue. And I was like, I don't want to just spend my life writing cute dialogue. So I turned down the job, which hmm. really hindsight, I should have, I should have took the job. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, like, I was like, I don't want to do that. So uh, another thing that I have in my notes about your career is that you then also made the jump towards indie stuff. Um, so I have Blacklight District and then also Killer Rabbits Company. Can you tell me a little bit more about both of those? Yeah, so um, the Killer Rabbits Company is my my publishing company. Um, we've got a book out right now on on uh, Kickstarter uh, called King of Kings, which is like the sort of was the culmination of some things. Um, I kind of bit off a lot more than I could chew like six years ago. It's funny, like what's happening right now, like um, people hiring Chuck Dixon and Chuck Dixon having a second coming in indie comics. That was my idea five years ago. Um, I had dinner with Chuck. I had dinner with Scott. Well, actually, I don't know if I had dinner with Scott. I tried to set up a dinner with Scott. But me and my buddy Aaron Sparrow is one of my best friends. He was my editor for Boom Studios. And uh, me and Aaron had, were trying to get the Disney license for a little while. Um, I was getting very frustrated with just how the sausage was made. And pretty much every comic book that I've ever worked on has been less than it could have been because of a ball being dropped because there wasn't a good shepherd making sure that things came out right. And I really kind of was tired of that. And I decided, all right, well, if nobody else will do a really good job, I'll do a really good job. And I kind of deputized myself. I did an art book for um, Four Horsemen Studios for their uh, Mythic Legions fantasy line. I hired Greg Weissman, who's the creator of Gargoyles for Disney and uh, Young Justice. It's basically uh, Spider-Man. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I still, I mean, any, any one of these days, they can go take that somewhere, probably one of these days and get freaking uh, Greg to come and show run and, and continue to do what I was planning on doing for them. But they really didn't give us a lot of money. Like we didn't make an, we didn't raise enough money and I didn't have enough money to put out. And I like went through a divorce and multiple fires at the time. And I just got so badly spent. And then Blacklight District, I finished and um, I didn't have any money to promote it because I was midway through uh, producing King of Kings, which came to a halt as soon as we finished drawing issue three um, because I ran out of money. And I was basically like pulling into like my kids' college funds to, um, to take care of it. And I, I, I had lost a couple of really big jobs that I had at the time. So Killer Rabbit's company was always meant to be, um, you know, the solution to the problem with these companies. Um, I think the problem with these companies has become very apparent 
in recent years, but um, it was very apparent to me being in the industry, you know, 10 years ago, uh, very frustrated. Uh, you know, I had Scott Snyder um, and multiple editors trying to get me in at DC and like everything I would do, I just ended up holding my dick in my hands constantly. I just be, would, would expend so much energy to make something really great for them. Um, like there's another idea that I had that finally is like I've seen come out. I was doing a book called Homicide Squad and uh, we're doing Task Force Y, which was also going to lead to Task Force Z. That was all my idea. Granted, I don't think anybody saw those ideas. Nobody stole them from me. But th those are like 10 years ago. I had a really good pitch at DC that I was like, these are things that I was trying to get through the door, multiple really, really good ones. Uh, I mean, like seriously, I, I could sit here and I could name a bunch of things like really quickly and you'd be like, oh wow, that's funny. Like, yeah, Jonah Hex, he gets stuck in the freaking future and now he's a bounty hunter in Gotham City riding a motorcycle and basically being like a dog, the bounty hunter, dating some chick with fake boobs because he's, he's never seen those before. And, and being, you know, and, and being this amazing badass Confederate soldier living in modern day, you know, dealing with it, it would have been freaking amazing. And it wouldn't have mattered that it was Jesse somebody that people didn't necessarily know my name yet even though some people do i'm i'm a real journeyman at this point i've been around for a long time so people who pay attention and people who have checked out the stuff that i've written i i always give 110 percent uh even when circumstances often kind of uh, kneecap you but um you know killer rabbits company our slogan was we're here to save you and you know we called the killer rabbits company because i really believe that creative people are like a bunch of fluffy bunnies and when when we we don't really know how to defend ourselves and we get taken advantage of by the by the not fluffy bunnies and then what happens is the ones of us who survive in the industries that we're in we're the ones who like patch up the eye and go back into battle like ah new mechanical arm i'll bring a gun this time ah back into the breach you know because otherwise you're just going to get your ass kicked by the world because you can't be a fluffy bunny living in the world so the killer rabbit company is is you know i only hire the fluffy bunnies or the former fluffy bunnies and uh you know and we're we're here to save you we're here to make the stuff that you want you know blacklight district was a music comic book project uh, the the world's first of its kind uh, it's a lyric comic book where you listen to songs and you follow the lyrics in the comic you can actually still check it out it's at www.blacklightdistrict.co um, hey, like Soups, I'll put that in the description play. as well for you guys. Yeah, there's um, there's six uh, comic books, one drawn by Jason Pearson, another one painted by uh, J.K. Woodward. Um, some amazing artists working on our stuff, Eric Larson, Chris Iliopoulos, uh, Phil Hester. Um, and um, we it's a kind of a psychedelic experience if you do it online because you have to focus on following the lyrics and listening to the music and it ties your ears with your eyes in a very interesting way and you'll notice that the images kind of float uh, sometimes as you're doing it very very cool it was kind of like a motion cool. comic when i was looking at it i was actually watching uh symptoms that was the first oh, one yeah. i turned on and yeah. i really was enjoying the music a lot and then um i liked how it it was like a motion comic, but it was more animated yeah, in the way that like it was. Ones on YouTube. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It, it flowed really nicely, like you were saying. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I, I was very, very proud of how it all came out. The the coolest bit of it is to actually do it and actively participate. You know, uh, do it uh, where you have to turn the page. You know, because that's the great thing about comic books is to particip 
the creative experience you participate in. You know, in a novel, you could be really excited about what's going on, but when you go to turn the page, you still got more things to read. You know, like you're gonna, you, you, you kind of only are as fast as the words are catching up. But in a comic book, when you go to turn that page, anything could be on that page. And a picture's worth a thousand words. And you can deliver that silver bullet to your audience with that turn page. That's why I love comic books as a medium. Um, and that's what we tried to use, you know, to, we really, I really demonstrated, I think, my love of music with this comic. I mean, my love of comics with this music and with this project. Would you say uh, it blended the, oh, sorry, my bad for interrupting. Oh, no. I was going to ask, would you say it just blended your two hobbies, your two loves um, into one? Yes. Because I realized, well, and I, I mean, I didn't even realize this until after the fact. I was kind of just experimenting. But, you know, the thing I loved about comic books was the stakes were so high. It was the end of the world, the end of your life. Uh, if not for Superman, you're going to die. You know, like those stakes being so high, um, rarely in songs, in music, are the stakes quite so high. So the whole project was written from that, that place of high stakes. And it was amazing for me, actually, because like, I, I didn't know, I didn't realize that I was dealing with a lot of depression in my life. And I had written this song called Green that was basically about the Hulk being unhappy with, you know, looking around and seeming like other people were happy and he wasn't happy. And I, in writing that song, I realized that I had gone through a major period of depression that I couldn't even like begin to acknowledge because I had made all these metaphors that were so big, but I realized that I really needed to say it. Like I needed to say it was the worst because you're, you're so often you like pull the punch. You don't want to say it was the worst, but the worst, that's it. The worst, the best. Those are the stakes that you play in when you're reading a comic book. He's the best there is at what he does and what he does ain't pretty. He is the fastest man alive. And who do you put up the, against these people? The worst of the worst you know it, it that those extremes the extreme polarity that is what delivers myth that is what gives you real learning and understanding seeing the worst and the best against each other and when superman is really at his best and he's refusing to just kill somebody he's just snap his neck and he's figuring out a better way to do it against the worst possible person who's found just the, the way to get under his skin and the way to really hurt people but superman finds a better way that's it you know, that's where you learn. That's when the medium is doing its best work. So, I mean, Blacklight District was always meant to represent that. And I think it does. I think it, it succeeded. Uh, the Mythic Legions art book, it came out beautifully. Um, some of the bonus content that we wanted to do, I ended up shortchanging because I I didn't have the money and I was oh, under so much stress at the time. So mm -hmm. I, I wasn't able to do the extras in the book as much as I wanted to. It ended up being a really just like a terrible time and of me like kind of bit off more than I could chew and I wanted to do such a good job for them I was so disappointed but um this comic book King of Kings that we're doing on the Kickstarter that was the culmination of it all it was like I was doing something for somebody else to show you know that I love the medium and I knew how to make great comic books and I just wanted to see I didn't it didn't have to be written by me it could be just overseen by me I could check it out I could just be looking and making sure that I shepherded it and it was great. And our story is great and our art is great and everything about that book for the most part, except for uh, except for some of the backup content that I wasn't able to go as far as I wanted to go on, was really great. Um, and I'm really proud of that and really proud of Blacklight District, which you know, I did a similar kind of thing with. And King of Kings though was mine. You know, I co-wrote it with my buddy, Mark Poulton. Well, speaking of King of Kings, actually, yeah. 
that just gives me to the next question that I want to get to. Um, okay. Let's dive into the project that you're working on and that you the reason for you coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's dive in. King of Kings is a Battle of the Bands tournament starring the gods of all the world's religions cast as rock stars competing for the title of King of Kings. Obviously, Jesus keeps winning. This is the 13th centennial, and after 1,300 years, Odin and the gods of rock have come back basically to get revenge upon Catholicism for the Northern Crusades and their first appearance in the King of Kings tournament where Odin's eye was taken by God and uh, Jesus peed in his eye socket. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really, really blasphemous. The, the, but, but the whole idea is, you know, it's not meant to piss people off. It's just, it, it is if you're be, taking religion very, very seriously. And I take religion very seriously as well. I've become a very spiritual person. Um, I was uh, an agnostic when I started this, but I went through a whole journey myself. And uh, it was never meant to be mean-spirited, though. It was just always meant to sort of, like, show all of the cards. Because I think people have a tendency to sort of, like, lean in the direction of whatever they've been shown. And everything else outside of that is just like, those are crazy people. Here's me and my real sane thing about this dude who was sent by the guy man in the sky. And, like, oh, you know, like, there's a plenty of ways to look at every religion and be like, oh, that not that lame? Like, yeah, man, but everybody has... Uh, ideas like this and actually when you start looking at them all you recognize that they are actually very similar in lots of ways Mm -hmm. and they're they're all part of the same story that has been interpreted through many different languages and interpreted in many different ways and that's the thing it's like you know like put down that knife he's saying something very similar to you can we recognize that this is largely the same instead of focusing on the ways that it is different because that's what's always happening. We're focused on the ways that it's different. And I wanted everybody to see how it was largely the same. Where did the idea come from for uh, King of Kings? Like, was it something that you were just thinking about one day? Or was it something that was brought to you by a friend and you guys started mapping it out and everything? Yeah, it was actually Mark Poulton had, had brought it to me in the first place because um, he uh, he didn't know, know me, but he knew of me. And he knew that I was um, a musician myself. So he said, uh, he met me at New York Comic Con and he said, hey, Jess, uh, I know you don't know me really well, but, um, you know, I'm Mark Bolton and I've done some work at DC and whatever else. And he showed me some, some of his books. And um, he said, I've got this idea for a behind the music with Odin and the gods of rock, imagining the Norse gods like we've forgotten about them because like, you know, their genre is, you know, passe. It's, it's past their time now. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Religious figures as musicians. That's neat. And. Uh, it's the first thought that I had was that, like, if he had, like, a nemesis, it would be Jesus. Because the the Catholics, like, or, or I'm not even sure, the Roman Catholic, whoever the hell it was, they went up north and they forced all of the Norse-believing people to believe their religion, which always struck me as so messed up, the Crusades. We're going to go around and we're going to, you believe something different, though? You are going to believe what I believe. You know, I mean, literally, people were tortured in order to get them to think the same. And Jesus never would have did that in a million years. And I've always had this kind of uh, saying about like, um, 
I often hate bands because of their fans and not because of the bands. Like I used to hate Radiohead and I used to hate Pink Floyd and I used to hate Bob Dylan. And it wasn't because those bands aren't great and I've gotten into those bands over time. It was because their fans sucked. The people who were like big fans of theirs, like they wanted to basically scale up their band as being the greatest band in the universe. And anybody else that you would bring up as being a band that you liked and thought you were your fa- they'd be like, oh yeah, that's your favorite. <laughs> Have you listened to Bob Dylan? Like, and you just want to punch these guys in the face. But I mean, you know, those sort of ideas about religion are what's so backwards and, and, and screwed up. It's all the dogma that puts yours ahead of everybody else's. And I really just believe that if we were willing to just look at them in a fair light together at the same time, you know, that's when you, you start to go, oh, man, like, wait a second. OK, so we have a little bit more time left. Can I make a plea for everybody to go, please check out the book? And can I say, I had a fire, I had a divorce, and then I Yes, I was going to ask you about this, that. Yeah, I tried to put this up on Indiegogo, and we got shadow banned, and I didn't know about it. And I literally went into a depression over the book because I thought I failed. I told all my friends, we all have a little stake in the book, and I told them I was going to do this. I, I got it. I'm going to carry this over the, the line, you know, for us all. We're going to score. And... And it, and, it, and it didn't get there. And then when I went to go do it on Indiegogo, and I literally only had some friends and family who were donating at the time because we were shadow banned, nobody could see the link. And after two weeks, I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not taking money from just my friends and family. And I gave it back. So when I realized uh, this past Christmas that we were shadow banned, I said, I'm going to give it another try. And uh, we are on Kickstarter this time. And Kickstarter has not shadow banned us. We've had plenty of people who have found us through natural means of searching for people through, um, you know, through the web, which is wonderful. And, um, you know, I'm just so excited. We already made our initial goal, but our initial goal was like our smallest, uh, you know, plateau just to print the book and make sure that the book comes out. The book is going to come out. You will definitely get a book. But um, in order to get this book to the next level where we can finish the second issue and the third issue, like we're really hoping to clear like 15 grand so we can get get this thing finished we just want the whole book finished and then we can offer the next ones is just a pre-order kind of thing on the uh for the uh, for the for the for the book on on all uh other pre on our future campaigns sorry i can't talk um but seriously from my heart and my family and all the families of all the people who have been working on this book we busted ass we designed over 50 characters we did so much research on all of these world religions so that we would know what we were talking about and we wouldn't be ignorant in in what we were talking about so we could actually make jokes that came from the right kind of place and you know we really knew what we were talking about by the time we finished this thing especially and you know we we just so many notes my brother shane ripped apart our first issue and i almost I, I was so depressed and then we went back and we like fixed everything and it's it's so good because of him like it's one of the best first issues i've ever written because of my brother shane because he was like what you didn't even and he like just gave us some rough notes and we were like okay he's right he's right he's right but i mean just so much time went into this even color designing them we hired eric treadaway from four horsemen studios to color design the book because we wanted all of our characters to pop out of the page the same way the hulk does and you know and that comes from that green and purple color contrast and you know complementary colors and things like that and uh, you know we really just put the time in so much money and effort and energy and it's it's so funny i just i just want other people to know about all these stupid jokes that we're making so that I can start to be laughing with everybody instead of just laughing amongst each other because <laughs> we really <laughs> had a good time and, and there is some stuff to laugh about. 
I was able to look at the small excerpt that was on the Kickstarter, and I will say the script so far, it was really funny. And I liked what I was seeing. And I'm really interested in seeing where King of Kings can go. And so, Soups, please, please, please be on the lookout for it and donate if you can. Uh, and Jesse, where can they find you or any of the socials from your other, uh, from your other endeavors? I'm on Facebook. My, my girlfriend runs the, the page for me. I think it's like face Jesse or you type in my name on Facebook. You can find me, but it's like a pro account and I don't have a, a normal account anymore. Uh, I do have a normal account on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, you can find me at Jesse blaze. Uh, no, it's sorry. I actually, it's coolest geek JBS. It's for my podcast. Um, but, um, for my podcast as well, I have an email address that's available for anybody. So if you ever wanted to write me a letter, uh, ask me any questions or anything, I, I'm an open book. I like to help people who are interested in being creators. So if you ever had any questions for me or whatever, I'm usually pretty cool about that. I'm Blaze at jessysnyder.com. As always, guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Super Saturdays Podcast, TikTok at Super Saturdays Pod, and Twitter at Super Saturdays PC. Your messages and your reviews can make their way on the show. This was Super Saturdays. I'm Damon. And I'm Jesse Blaze Snyder. Thanks for having me, Damon. Of course. So, see you next Saturday, Soups.